Hello and welcome to a new type of episode of Write on Buddhism called the Asian Religion Series. In this series, we will be discussing religious traditions in Asia other than Buddhism. Buddhism never existed in a vacuum, and as it has spread all across East Asia, it has developed, localized, and syncretized with local traditions in fascinating and significant ways. As such, we cannot provide a complete picture of East Asian Buddhism without discussing those local traditions, such as they were and such as they are. Today, we will be continuing our discussion of Hinduism, a very historically and culturally significant religious tradition originating in India. If you have not already, please listen to part one of our Asian religion series on Hinduism. We hope you enjoy. When we last left off, we were in the Puranic period of Hinduism, which lasted from about 1000 BCE to 500 CE, during which time the Puranas were composed in Sanskrit. Sanskrit was the holy language of Hinduism during this time, and to come to know the Puranas was to come to know Sanskrit as a language. Sanskrit was, and still is, an incredibly complex, beautiful, and complicated language which is classified as a Proto-Indo-European language. This means that it bears many similarities in phonology and grammar to Greek and Latin. Although it was critically important for Hindu ritual and text, it was much like Latin in the sense that only a few elites knew it, while the masses did not. As such, Sanskrit was perhaps the most important textual language of study for this period of Hinduism. But many other languages and dialects were spoken and used as well. As I mentioned, the Puranas were composed in Sanskrit. Purana is a genre of Indian religious literature composed during the aforementioned period, and it contains stories of gods and goddesses, myths and legends, cosmologies, cosmogonies, and more. Most Puranic texts are named after the deity that they primarily concern. For example, there is a 10,000-verse Purana text about Brahma, the creator god of the Trimurti, which we discussed previously. Similarly, there are Puranas of Shiva and Vishnu, and many others as well. It is pretty much impossible to sit here and comprehensively tell you that the Puranas were about this or that specific topic because they are extremely diverse. It would be like me sitting here and picking a genre of fiction, like mystery for example, and saying that the genre of mystery is about X. No matter what I say, I will inadvertently leave a huge amount of content that exists out there out of my description. Even if I were to zoom my scope into the religious only, it would still be foolish to try. Ludo Rucher, a well-renowned 20th century scholar of Sanskrit and Hinduism, is quoted as saying, I want to stress the fact that it would be irresponsible and highly misleading to speak of or pretend to describe the religion of the Puranas. It simply can't be done. All of this is true about the Puranas. However, I promise to do this episode on the conversation and the relationship that takes place between Buddhism and Hinduism during the time of the life of the Buddha. In order to do that, I will not attempt to look at things from the perspective of the Puranas, which I admittedly have not read. I will instead look at things from the perspective of the Buddhist canon, which I have read a great deal of. I have to give a disclaimer here and say that doing this will make my survey of the discussion biased in favor of the Buddhists. I have no doubt that the Buddhist canon makes a straw man out of Hindu thought when arguing their case in many occasions, but I simply do not know enough to show the other side in a complete and thorough fashion. I am a specialist of Japanese Buddhism, so go into this knowing that my expertise is separated from this topic by many centuries and many thousands of miles. Knowing that, let's get right into it. The points we have to discuss today are linguistic, mythological, doctrinal, and rhetorical in nature. Let's start with linguistics. I spent that whole first bit of the episode talking about Sanskrit because Sanskrit and adjacent Prakrit languages, such as Pali, are very important to the earliest Buddhist canon. We mentioned that the Puranas and other early Hindu texts such as the Vedas were pretty much all composed in Sanskrit, 
with some exceptions and some different versions that exist in other languages. The early Buddhist canon was composed in a variety of languages, including Sanskrit, but one of the most important languages of study for the earliest texts of Buddhism is Pali, a Prakrit language. Prakrit is a category of languages that refers to any of the ancient or medieval vernacular dialects of northern and central India that existed alongside or were derived from Sanskrit. It is very easy to see the close relationship between Sanskrit and Pali in the Buddhist texts. For example, Sanskrit Dharma is rendered as Dhamma in Pali. Why does all of this complicated linguistic stuff matter? Well, there have been some scholars who, in the earlier years of Buddhism studies in the West, have argued that the fact that Sanskrit was a liturgical language, or an elite language, in Indian culture, and that Pali was a vernacular language, shows that the composition of the Buddhist canon in Pali represented an attempt to democratize Buddhism and make it into a grassroots movement of sorts that was accessible to many different types of people. This has since been discounted for a number of reasons. One reason is that Pali is just the regional vernacular in Magadha, where the Buddha was from. So it is likely that the sermons were given in Pali and preserved orally in Pali before they were ever written down. The grassroots Buddhism argument has been extrapolated in the past to essentially claim that Buddhism represented a grassroots rejection of Hinduism. It is often regarded as a rejection of the caste system, of religious elitism, and of the doctrines of Hinduism. This is not entirely the case. Much of the vocabulary in Hinduism and Buddhism is actually shared. Dharma, karma, samsara, rebirth, atman, all of these are shared between Buddhism and Hinduism. They have very different views of the meaning, nature, and significance of these concepts, but they are nonetheless shared. This is another piece of evidence against the grassroots Buddhism argument. Buddhism and Hinduism were indeed in conversation with each other and had their differences, but they weren't entirely antithetical to each other. So what was their conversation? Well, we have mentioned that Hinduism believed in the eternal nature of the Atman, or the capital S Self, which is one with, or a fraction of, ultimate reality, which is known as Brahman. The Buddhists, as we have discussed, reject the Atman, and say that, instead, the nature of reality is Anatman, or non-self. They also reject the idea of an ultimate reality in the form of Brahman. They argue that the idea of Atman and Brahman is a desire for permanence, which is futile because of the reality of impermanence. Nothing is eternal, and that is readily observable. In more practical terms, we have also talked about their differing perspectives on asceticism. Whereas Hinduism reserved study of the Vedas to the upper classes and reserved asceticism for the elderly who were near death, Buddhism emphasized renunciation and asceticism at pretty much any age. As such, many have argued that the early Buddhist movement rejected the caste system. If it rejects the system of Dharma, which is determined by one's social status and one's age, then clearly it must reject the entire social stratification created by the caste system. However, this is not actually true in every case. As with most questions asked of Buddhism, the answer is complicated. The Buddha criticized the caste system and he criticized the self-importance of the Brahmin class, but he made no attempt to dismantle, change, or replace the caste system as a whole. Furthermore, in our previous episode on Hinduism, we talked extensively about how Hinduism understands Dharma to be an individual's duty, at least in the context of maintaining the universal order. In Buddhism, the argument was that there is no such thing as an individual Dharma, which is attached to one's Atman, because there is no Atman. Dharma instead was a universal principle of reality. It was something that applied to everybody equally. Additionally, if we understand Dharma to prescribe what one ought to do in a given situation, the Hindu and the Buddhist thinkers had different arguments there as well. Whereas Hindu people's dharma or duty was to maintain the social order and the universal order by fulfilling their social and spiritual duties according to their social status and stage of life, the Buddhists had to seek enlightenment, nirvana, 
snuffing out, etc. Here we come upon another difference. One of the primary goals, though not the only goal, of Hindu thought at this time period was to achieve moksha, or liberation from samsara. This may sound like the same as nirvana or enlightenment, but it's not quite the same. This occurred when one erased karmic results of their actions and realized the unity between their Atman and the universal reality, Brahman. Buddhism criticized this entire system as being an effort to seek permanent existence, eternality, and constancy. The Buddha viewed such things as impossible to attain, and he viewed these goals as being misdirected. Instead, the primary goal of Buddhism is not to achieve and realize permanence and eternality, but to achieve and realize impermanence, nirvana, and exit from samsara entirely. Both Hinduism and Buddhism are asking the question of how to achieve release from the world of suffering, but they are answering it quite differently. Finally, we should mention how karma is different. In Vedic Hinduism, the word karma translates more closely to the results of one's actions, and this is ordained or controlled by the gods. If you do A, it is up to the gods that B or C or D happens as a result, either immediately or long on down the line. This leaves no room for intentionality. Although the Bhagavad Gita and all these other highly influential Hindu texts are all about releasing oneself from attachment to karmic results, they do not say that intention in action has a really determinative role to play in the karmic nature of that action or in the result of it. That is up to the gods, and that cannot be known by man. In Buddhism, karma is very strongly and closely attached to one's intention. For example, if I donated a bunch of money to a charity because it's a tax write-off and not because I care about the cause, that is unethical and bad karma in Buddhism. If I were to do the same thing because of a genuine urge to remedy the suffering of people, then the same action would accrue better karma. The relationship between intention, action, and result, or in other words, causality, can be known and grasped by people, and ought to be grasped in order to cease acting karmically, achieve liberation from the world of cause and effect, and achieve nirvana. In Hinduism, the gods decide what the karmic fruits of such an act will be. The will of the gods cannot be known or accounted for by human beings. As such, we ought to yoke ourselves to worship and ritual devotion to improve our lot at the same time as doing good acts. If this end of the agreement is held up, then the gods will hold up their end and the world will be prosperous and in order. These are not all of the differences between Hinduism and Buddhism, but they are enough to get us started thinking about how these systems relate to each other. I still maintain that these traditions are not rejections of each other or rebellions against each other. I don't deny that they relate with each other historically, doctrinally, and philosophically, but to say one developed as a sole rebellion or a rejection of the other does not give it any credit for originality. So how are they similar? Well, recently we started a series of a few episodes discussing devas, asuras, and other types of beings which exist in the Hindu cosmology as well as in the Buddhist one. Even on that point they differ slightly because while devas, asuras, and other beings from the Hindu pantheon exist in Buddhism, they're mortal and they can die. And they are inferior in karma and in merit even to the arhat, and even more to the Pracheka Buddha, Bodhisattva, and Buddha. In Hinduism, devas are the cream of the crop. They are the most powerful, meritorious, and influential individuals in the entire universe. All of the details of the differences are covered rather clearly in those episodes, so I will direct you to those rather than repeat all of them here. Instead, I would like to pick a few cool characters from both cosmologies and discuss a little bit about their lives in both. First, I would like to mention Sarasvati. Sarasvati is the Hindu goddess of music, art, speech, and learning, and she is the consort of the creator god Brahma. She has a rich life in the myths and texts of Hinduism, but I bring her up here because she plays an unexpectedly outsized role in Japanese Buddhism and Shinto. Sarasvati 
in the course of being adopted into the Buddhist cosmology, ends up in the Sutra of Golden Light, known in Sanskrit as the Suvarna Prabhasa Sutra. In this sutra, she appears before the Buddha and promises to protect anybody who copies and recites the sutra. She has some warrior characteristics like the goddess Durga, who we talked about previously, so she can be menacing and protective when she needs to be. In addition to this, she vows to make people a lot smarter and a lot more intelligent, and she gives them special knowledge of the Dharanis. You'll remember that Dharanis are those special mnemonic phrases with special powers that we talked about before. These Dharanis and mantras can be like magic spells, which can make people heal from being sick or injured, and which can make people have more prosperous lives, and things like that. Then, she turns around in the sutra and teaches all of that stuff to the audience. She also shows up in some esoteric Buddhist texts and imagery, such as the mandalas of the two worlds, and the Vairachana Abhisambodhi Sutra. When these texts get to Japan, she is regarded as a kami slash bodhisattva known as Benzaiten. You'll remember that there was the idea of Honji Suijaku in Japanese Buddhism, which argued that Shinto kami were manifestations of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. This caused there to be many shared characters between the pantheon of Shinto and the pantheon of Buddhism, which as you know inherited a lot of characters from Hinduism. Some of these shared characters include Hachiman, Daikokuten, Kishoten, and others. Benzaiten was an example of one of these types of characters. Cults of worship popped up around her which made offerings of music, martial arts, literature, and other such artistic endeavors. She is one of the seven lucky gods in Shinto, known as the Shichi Fukujin in Japanese. The next character of note is Parvati, goddess of power, energy, nourishment, harmony, love, beauty, devotion, and motherhood. She is the consort of Shiva, the destroyer. She is representative of the ultimate feminine principle or energy, known as Shakti in Hinduism, and she has a very colorful life in the texts as well. In the same fashion as Benzaiten, she ends up as one of the seven lucky gods also, and becomes known as Daikokuten. The next character of note is Lakshmi, goddess of wealth, fortune, power, beauty, fertility, and prosperity. She is the consort of Vishnu, the preserver god, and together with Sarasvati and Parvati, she is one of the tree devi, or the three goddesses. She also has a rich life in the text that I don't want to get into here, but I do want to mention her life in Buddhism. In Chinese Buddhism, she is a goddess of wealth and prosperity who has several dedicated worship spaces in Chinese Buddhist temples. She's also like a kami in Japanese Shinto, where she's known as Kichijoten or Kishoten. Along with Benzaiten and Daikokuten, she's also one of the seven lucky gods. In Chinese and Japanese Buddhism, she is also the sister of one of the four heavenly kings, known as the Katar Maharaja in Sanskrit, the Sitian Wang in Chinese, or the Shitenno in Japanese. These are extremely important protector deities in Buddhism. They are frequently represented in statuary or icons in temple spaces in the four cardinal directions. They serve Chakra, the king of the devas who resides in the Triatrimsa heaven. I will give a brief description of each one in turn. The god of the northern direction is Vaishravana, he who hears everything. He is the chief of the four, controller of the rain and of the yakshas, and his weapon is the umbrella. He's depicted in armor and holding an umbrella in his right hand. The yakshas are a class of nature spirits below most devas but above the asuras. They are usually ugly ogre-looking creatures who are vicious protectors of the faithful. Vaishravana is also a kami known as Bishamonten, and he's also one of the seven lucky gods in Shinto. The god of the southern direction is Virudaka, he who causes to grow. He causes the good growth of roots of plants, he controls the winds, and he controls the kumbandas, another class of low deities who are dwarfish and vicious-looking. He carries a sword to protect Buddhists. 
The god of the eastern direction is Dhritarashtra, he who upholds the realm. He is the god of music, and he carries a pipa, which is a stringed instrument. He is harmonious and compassionate and protects all beings, and he uses his music to convert others to Buddhism. He controls the Gandharvas. These guys are also lower deities, but what is so fun about them is that they're musicians. They are beautiful male musicians and singers, or beautiful female dancers, and they use their performance to hypnotize and convert people. The god of the western direction is Virupaksha, he who sees all. His weapon is a snake, or a red cord, which represents the snake, and he sees everybody in all reality who is not Buddhist, and he goes to convert them. He controls the Nagas, or the sea serpents, whom we have seen Manjushri preach to in previous sutras. All of these characters can be represented aniconically, which means that they can be represented as an object without a statue. Vaishravana can be represented as an umbrella, a mongoose, or a stupa. Virudaka can be represented with a sword. Dhritarashtra can be represented as a pipa, or the stringed instrument from before. Finally, Virupaksha can be represented as a serpent, a pearl, or a stupa. All of these creatures and characters originally pop up in the Hindu pantheon, but here they are adapted to protect practitioners of Buddhism. Continuing on, I want to mention Indra, one of the oldest gods in the Hindu cosmology. He is the god of storms and controls the lightning. He is the ruler of the entire realm of the devas, and you might see him named as the guy in charge of the four heavenly kings, Chakra. Together with Brahma, Indra is adapted in Buddhism to be one of the protectors of the Buddha himself. In temple spaces, you'll often see statues of Brahma and Indra off to either side of the Buddha's dais at the left and right walls. You have likely also heard of Indra's net, a metaphor from the Avatamsaka Sutra for the emptiness of all things. The Avatamsaka Sutra, which we will read and discuss soon, is known as the Flower Garland Sutra in English, and it is a critically important text in many schools of Buddhism, but most important to the Flower Garland school of Buddhism, Avatamsaka in Sanskrit, Huayan in Chinese, and Kegon in Japanese. Within Indra's net, there are infinite jewels, and in the surface of each jewel is reflected every single other jewel. This is a metaphor for emptiness, interdependent origination, and interpenetration in Buddhism. So now that we've covered all of these different characters and a lot of these different doctrines and all of these linguistic points, I want to mention the rhetorical aspect of this discussion. Why did Buddhism import all of these gods and devas and characters from the Hindu pantheon into their own, and how did they do that? This is a very complicated question which scholars have spent a lot of time trying to answer, but I think that I can sum it up by saying that this was a move on the part of the Buddha to leverage the familiarity that his audience would have had with all of these characters. Because they knew how important and how significant they were to the Hindu pantheon, and how important they were to the Brahmin class, he could say to them that the Arhats, the Pracheka Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas, and the fully realized Buddhas were all even more significant than that. And he could even say that the most important and oldest deities, such as Brahma and Indra, were actually attendants of the Buddha. From the Hindu side, this same kind of thing happens sometimes. For example, one of the avatars of Vishnu, who we talked about in the previous episode as being able to descend into the world, is said to be the Buddha himself. That is to say that Hindu people often believe that the Buddha was not a heretic or a naysayer or a non-believer. He's actually a very important god in the Hindu pantheon. When I say leverage familiarity that the audience would have had with these characters, that doesn't mean that the Buddha was malicious or manipulative in his preaching. In fact, we talked in a previous episode about how all of these gods' existence and their position in the cosmology was taken as social reality. Believing that these gods were who they were and where they were and were like they were was the best way that these ancient cultures had come to know their reality. 
had come to know the world around them and their position in it. It's likely that as a Kshatriya, the Buddha himself was aware of his place in this cosmology and the significance of these deities, and he sought to argue that his dharma, his teaching, was more meaningful, more significant, more universal than anything that the Brahmin class was preaching. So that covers all of the points I wanted to discuss today concerning the historical, doctrinal, and philosophical conversations that happened between Buddhism and Hinduism in the ancient period. As you've probably heard, I jumped over all of those stories of a lot of those gods and goddesses in Hinduism. I've done this at this time to get into the weeds about the connections between these Hindu gods and Buddhist gods. However, I mean to pick up their stories and tell you a little bit more about them in the next episode. We've left our discussion here with this discussion between Hinduism and Buddhism, and I will pick back up a few of those left-out stories in our next part of our Asian religion series on Hinduism. I hope you have enjoyed part two of our discussion of Hinduism, and I hope you will join us next time for Hinduism part three, where we will pick up our story with some of the myths of the tree Morti, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, and the tree Devi, Sarasvati, Lakshmi, and Parvati. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you next time. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and voice of hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of hermit. And this is Med Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com, or find us on Mastodon at brightbuddhism at mstdn.party. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.